This morning, we're going to continue our series through the book of Mark, and we are going to look at what matters most, what matters most. Um, we've been going through the book of Mark where this is probably sermon number 30, 31. Uh, we're just working our way through the text. And um, in, in Mark chapter 12, there's a series of, um, of opponents who come to Jesus and they are trying to trap him and trick him and, and, and ask him some really hard questions and, and get him to slip up. And so last week we saw that it's vain to oppose Jesus because he perfectly embodies wisdom, truth, and divine authority. And so he responded skillfully and wisely with authority to those religious leaders who were coming at him with questions trying to trap him. We looked at how he responded to the question, is it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? This was particularly a very uh, difficult question to answer. If he answered just simply yes or no, the, the results would not have been good for him. But his response was, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto, unto God that which is God's. And he stumped them. He didn't get trapped in their trap that they tried to set up with, for him. And he pointed to the reality that, that Christians should pay their taxes, that Christians should have a posture of submission to the governing authorities, even the ungodly ones. And we looked at that in Paul's epistle of Romans, first uh, Peter, uh, Peter's epistle. But we also looked at how Jesus, how Jesus told us to give God our highest allegiance, render unto God that which is God's. Caesar doesn't get our highest allegiance. God does, right? And so we're going to continue that theme today as Jesus is questioned again by another religious leader, a scribe this time, who doesn't seem to come with malicious intent like the others did. And he, he asked Jesus, what matters most? Which commandment is most important in all the law? Okay. Now this is a, this was a, a debate. This was, this was something that was discussed among religious leaders. This is something that's discussed among humanity. I mean, we've all been in conversations about discussing who's the greatest basketball player. Okay. Uh, we, we have discussions about, uh, what's, what's the greatest, um, medicine to use for certain, for certain things. What's the best car to purchase? The best for us, a minivan not too long ago and so a few years ago. Which one should we get? What's the best minivan? Like we have discussions about what's the best and what's the greatest. Kids, even as kids, uh, they, they discuss, you know, whose dad is stronger than like who's this or who has the smartest dad or, you know, there's this comparison about the great, the greatest, right? And so Jesus is faced with this question about what's the greatest command in all the law and what's most important in, in the Old Testament, in the scripture, and we're going to look at Jesus's answer. He, he answers us with what matters most. And you know what he points us to? He points us to love. Now, this is a familiar passage, I know, for most of us. And so I, I hope to look at a couple different angles there so you, so we don't just, um, in familiarity, just kind of pass on through this the text and, and, and be like, I know this already, right? Uh, because the, this guy who questioned Jesus, he knew a lot about the law and he agreed with Jesus and he affirmed Jesus's answer. And Jesus said, you're near to the kingdom, but near knowing the right answers doesn't make you in the kingdom of God. 
Okay? Knowing the right answers doesn't equate loving the Lord your God with all your heart or loving your neighbor as yourself. So let's look at this here. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And Jesus didn't stop there. He added, he said, this is, this, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor, one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely and he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And all God's people said, amen. So here's our big idea this morning. God rightfully demands that we love him with our entire being and genuinely love others. Living in this love matters more than anything else that we do. God rightfully demands that we love him with our entire being and genuinely love others. And living in this love matters more than anything else that we do. You know, I've often said that if I were to die and stand before God and God were to show me a trailer of my life, like a movie trailer, a clip, a summary of how I lived, the main thing that I would want to see myself doing in that clip of my life is loving God and loving people because that's what matters most, right? According to Jesus, that's what the law uh, puts the emphasis on. That's the heart of the law and that's what that's the, the essence of God's will for you and I and how we live our lives in this world. The essence of his will revealed to us is love him and love people, right? God rightfully requires all of us not just the part of us, he rightfully requires all of us. Jesus said that the most important, and he, and he quotes the, the great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, this passage was very familiar to the Jews of Jesus's day. This is called the Shema. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter six. And this was well known. And the word Shema means to hear. So hear, O Israel. Shema Israel. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. And it starts with the Lord is one, which, which highlights the unity of God. 
Now, as Christians, of course, on, on this side, in the New Testament, we know that, that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Kids, how many persons are there in God? There are three persons in one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Shema, the great Shema. So it affirms the Lord is one, and it affirms the covenant relationship between God and the Jewish people. The Lord our God, the, 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 the God of Israel who delivered his people out of Egypt, who rescued them, who redeemed him, who showed them his covenant love and faithfulness by bringing deliverance to them. And, and so in the, in the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there were 613 commands and precepts in God's law. So 30, 365 of them were negative and 248 of them were positive commands. And so there were a number of commands that a religious leader could have answered this question with and could have pointed to, this is what matters most. And Jesus says the two greatest are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Now the second half, the second command that he points to is found in Leviticus 19. So he pulls Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 together and he says this is what matters most. In Matthew's account of this, he says on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets are fulfilled in these two commands. Love God and love others. And so he requires all of our love, all of our devotion Walter Weasel says that God is to be loved completely and totally because he and he alone is God. And because he has made a covenant of love with his people. And in the covenant, God gives himself totally in love to his people. Therefore, he expects his people to give them themselves totally soul, mind and strength in love to him. Now, the Israelites had a display of God's covenant love by him rescuing them out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, and God showed up on their behalf. Now, we have another great deliverance that we look to as Christians, the cross, as the measure of God's covenant-keeping love for us. And we've been brought in to that. So he, he demands that we in response to his love for us, his saving love, his rescuing love, he demands that we respond back to him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's our entire being with all that we are, that we love God from the inside out. John Piper in his book, What Jesus Demands from the World, he says that the heart highlights the center of our volitional and emotional life without excluding thoughts. The soul highlights our life as a whole, though sometimes distinguished from the body. And the mind highlights our thinking capacity. Love God with all your mind. Think much about God. Think great thoughts about God. Let him be the center of your attention, the center of your thoughts, of, of what, 
of who and what consumes your mind. God, when you're in love, uh, those of you who are married, those of you who are married and, and just think back to those early stages of dating and engagement and just think about how much of your thoughts, how many of your thoughts were directed to your spouse because you fell in love. Because you, and, and of course that should still continue, right? But early on, early on, we're consumed with thoughts about our lover, right? And of course that has to be cultivated and that has to be stoked and that ha- must continue in our covenant relationships in marriage. And it's the same with our relationship with God. Our love for him should be expressed in how we think about him and how much we think about him. And what we say about him, the way that we talk about him. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the, the heart, the mouth speaks. Don't we talk about the things that we love? The restaurants that we love, the, the great deals that we love, the events that we love, the sports that we love, the people that we love. We just tend to talk about those people and things that we love most. And if God is the center of our love, if he's the center of our affections, the object of our love, then we're going to talk much about him. But if our talk doesn't have any action to it, if we don't love him with our strength, if we don't, we don't exert our strength to obey him, then, then our love is lacking and it's incomplete. He doesn't just want us to talk about him. He doesn't want us to just think about him. He wants us to obey him, to walk with him, to seek him, to have affections for him. This involves our, our affections as well. Our emotional life is affected by those whom we love, right? There's emotions that are directed, involved. Our will is involved in that. Piper points that the strength highlights the capacity to make vigorous efforts, both bodily and mentally. And so God demands this, and let me just point this out, that this is for our good. Some have accused God of being selfish for demanding such of humanity. That, that God would say, you have to love me. And, and some see God as this ego, ego, egotistic maniac out there that needs somebody to give him compliments. But it's not like that with God. God knows that us loving him and giving him our entire affection, allegiance, devotion, he knows that that is the very best thing for us. He knows that it's for our good, that it's for our joy. Now, he clearly stated this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse uh, 13. I'll start in verse 12. And he says, now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and the statues of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. This is for your good. God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. St. Augustine said, God knows that he's the one that we need most, that heart peace and joy or happiness, if you will, 
is, is only truly found in him in a relationship with him. Purpose and fulfillment and significance in this life is truly only found in a loving relationship with him. We're created by him and for him. And it's for our good and it's for his glory both. That we give him our entire being with all that is within us. We love him. We worship him. We serve him. It's for our good. It's for our joy. You see, God knows that if we give that highest allegiance and highest affection and highest, uh, greatest attention to anyone else or anything else in, in place of him, he knows that that sets us up for devastation, for sorrow, for brokenheartedness. He knows that he's the only one that he could, that can rightfully hold that place in our lives. That's why I think in Psalm 16, David points out that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The sorrows of those who run after another God, cheat on the one true God, and go chase after little gods, there's going to be great sorrow and devastation for that person. And in this psalm, the contrast is joy. At the end of the psalm, Psalm 1611, it says, in your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So God knows that it's for our joy, that it's for our good, that he have that highest place in our lives and that any idols that we place before him, any little gods that we allow to creep in and take our heart affection and take our allegiance and take our attention, he knows that that will break our hearts and do harm to us. And so he commands this for us, for our good. Now, here's, here's the reality, too, that we need to look at in this, is that we've all failed to fulfill God's requirements. God's standard of us is very high. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I don't know anybody who claims to be doing that or has claimed to achieve that level of perfection of keeping the law to that point. Except Jesus. Jesus is the only one I know who walked this earth and who lived a life of perfect love and obedience to the Father and loving others so much to the point that he laid his life down in obedience to the Father and in sacrificial love for others, even others who were ridiculing him, mocking him, hitting him, falsely accusing him unjustly crucifying him and so we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of god we've missed the mark we've missed the mark in keeping the law and we can't be justified by trying to keep the law we need a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves and we need a love that is greater than we can merely conjure up and self-will towards God or towards others. We need the gospel. J.C. Ryle says this, that, that is, it is only by gross ignorance of the requirements of God's law which make people undervalue the gospel. 
The person who has the clearest view of the moral law will always be the person with the highest sense of value of Christ's atoning blood. You see, as we've said it many times here, that, that we're, we're more sinful than we, than we realize. Far more sinful than we realize. And yet we're more loved and accepted than we realize. And so when we, when we do, as, as uh, Michael was sharing with communion, uh, when we do recognize how much that we have been forgiven of, when we recognize the depth of God's mercy and grace towards us and his love towards us and forgiving the great sins that we have, the many sins that we have, it causes love to well up in our hearts and gratitude for the gospel of grace for covering those sins and paying for those sins on our behalf. We need to both see that we have sinned and that we have a Savior. As John Newton said, I've learned two things. The, the, one, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, former slave trader, he said, I know two things. I'm a great sinner and I have a great Savior. I think we need to know those two things as well. And also know that God doesn't leave us as sinners who are dominated by sin's power in our lives. That the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit does enable us to love him back and love others. We'll look at that here in a moment. To love well, we must know God. To love well, we must know God. Look at what 1 John does with, with this idea of loving God and knowing God. In 1 John 4, 7 and 8. He says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So one of the things that happens when we become Christians is we get born again. We get born again and God changes us supernaturally from the inside out. He does in us what we can't do for ourselves. Not only by Jesus coming and dying in our place and atoning for our sins with his perfect sacrifice as his life being laid down, which was a display of the love of God while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, but then he pours out Romans 5, 5. He pours out into our hearts by his spirit, the love of God. And so there's this receiving of God's love when we become Christians and we're born again and we have a DNA that, that within that DNA as the, as children of God, we have this, we have this bent towards this tendency towards love and righteousness. The, the trajectory of our life changes because we've come to know God. We've come to know his son, Jesus. So to know, to, to love well, we must know God who is love. We must have a genuine, authentic relationship with him through Jesus Christ. John seventeen three says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now look at what Jesus prayed in John 17, 26. He said, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now let this sink in for a minute. 
Jesus said, I, I revealed, Father, your name to them. I declared it. I revealed it. I made you known. I made them. I made you known to them. And the result is, the result is that they would know your love, that they would ha- possess your love, that the love that you have for me, which you have loved me, may be in them. See, this is what happens when we come to know God. We possess God's love within us and it changes us from the inside out. It wrecks us in the best sense and dismantles the walls and the barriers that we put up in pride and self-righteousness and self-preservation. It brings us to a place where we let down those fig leaves and we quit trying to cover up who we really are. Because God accepts us as we really are and he loves us as we really are and then he changes us and he walks with us through the process of changing us into becoming loving people. And as we've read through the gospel of Mark, we see that the disciples needed this because they were knuckleheads in many senses. In many circumstances, we see them getting in arguments with each other we see them jockeying for position. We see them missing the point of the gospel. And Jesus patiently walks with them, explains to them the gospel message. John Piper says this. He says, to love God, we must know him. God would not be honored by groundless love. In fact, there's no such thing. If we do not know anything about God, there's nothing in our mind to awaken love. If love does not come from knowing God, then there's no point in calling it love for God. There may be some vague attraction in our heart or some unfocused gratitude in our souls. But if they do not arise from knowing God, they are not love for God. And so we need to know God and we need to know him as a God who is rich in love. The Lord gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says his love finds expression in everything he says and does. He also says the New Testament gives us two yardsticks for measuring God's love. The first is the cross and the second is the gift of sonship. Why is this important? Why, why, why are we taking this little detour, seemingly detour, to talk about knowing God to love well and knowing him as a God who's rich in love? Well, we're taking this detour because 1 John 4.19 tells us that we love because he first loved us. You see, our love for God and our love for people is a domino effect of having encountered the God of the Bible in a genuine loving relationship. And he has changed us. He's changed the trajectory of our life. We've been born again. We've been changed from the inside out. And we've been loved and accepted as we are. And he's changing us into becoming more loving people. And one of the greatest heartaches as, as, as Christians is, is the reality is, is being in tune with our hearts and, and realizing how much we don't love as we ought to. Because we fall so short. We fall so short in so many ways. 
I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves, we have failed to love perfectly. And when it's all said and done, that's what really matters most. When our life is presented before us, when it's evaluated on judgment day and we give an account for our lives, that's what really matters most. Did we love God? Did we love others well? Did we live out the gospel that we have professed to believe and proclaim to others by loving well? Because our love for one another is an authentication of our, of, of real Christianity. First John straight up tells us if we don't love, we're not born of God. Like this is a mark of the child of God. Yet, we know that our love is not perfected and we have lots of room to grow in becoming loving people who love God with our entire being, who love our neighbors as ourselves. And we fail and when we fail, we confess our sin and we run to our perfect savior who has loved us perfectly, who, is, who brings us salvation. Thank God your salvation and my salvation doesn't depend on how well we can keep God's commands. Because by the law, trying to keep the law and the requirement of the law, including the positive commands of loving God and loving people, no one's justified. No one's made right. The fact that we do love God and we do love people is evidence that we have been justified and we're being sanctified. And we will be saved and we will be changed and glorified when we see Jesus. Let me just share one more here. Charles Spurgeon said, sweet above all other things is love, a mother's love, a father's love, a husband's love, a wife's love. But all these are only faint images of the love of God. Just think about his perfect love for you. Think about those who've loved you best in this life, those that you've received the most love from in this life and how that has shaped you and, and, and brought healing and wholeness to you and strengthened you in, in who God has called you to be. But all those are just faint images, Spurgeon says, of the love of God. D.A. Carson in his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, says that God's love is both the model and the incentive for our love. It's both the model and the incentive for our love. So we need to know God, the God of the Bible. We need to know his love for us and be changed by it. And out of in response to that love, we love him and we love others. Amen. And so lastly, God requires us to love others. He says, the second commandment, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no other command greater than these. He pulls from Leviticus 19 with this particular passage. And D.A. Carson highlights the context around that, give expressions to love your neighbor. What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, in the context of Leviticus 19, he gives a number of, of specific expressions of ways that the Israelites could love their neighbors as their self. And by the way, in, in Luke's account of this, this encounter with the scribe, 
uh, Jesus goes into uh, he goes into the the Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan. But but who is my neighbor, wanting to justify himself? So in in Leviticus nineteen, he describes uh, care for the poor, care for the poor, don't steal, don't lie, be fair in business dealings, care for the deaf, care for the blind. Deal justly with all. Avoid slander. Don't jeopardize the life of your neighbor. Don't jeopardize the life of your neighbor. That's relevant right now. Don't harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor when necessary for his and your good. And don't take revenge or bear a grudge against another. These are all practical ways that we can love one another. And that is a part of our vision here at City Church, to know Jesus, to love people and impact your world. It's one of our values. Loving community is one of our values here. Tim Keller says this. He says, Jesus shows us that love actually defines the lawful life. And he shows us that the law actually defines the loving life. When Jesus says all the laws boil down to love God and neighbor, he's saying we have not fulfilled a law by simply avoiding what the law prohibits. But we must do and be what the law is really after, namely love. And why is this important? Because in Jesus' day, there were religious experts who had so mastered external righteousness self-righteousness they looked very righteous externally and they kept the law externally down to the smallest of details that just seemed ridiculous but internally they did not keep the law well they didn't they didn't keep the law period they appeared to having kept the law they thought they could keep the law and jesus called them out on their false righteousness on their self-righteousness and he called them hypocrites he called them hypocrites and even even within like the gospel of john in john chapter 8 he said if if god to the religious leaders if god was your father you would love me if god was your father you would love me they were trying to kill jesus and he says basically if you're of god the God of the Bible, Yahweh, who's love, then you wouldn't be trying to kill me. You wouldn't be attacking me. You wouldn't be slandering me. You wouldn't be doing to me what's unjust and unrighteous, plotting to kill my life. And John teases that out in First John chapter, in First John chapter three and four. Right now, over the last year and a half, you and I have been presented with a number of golden opportunities to love. We've been presented with a number of golden opportunities to love. Last year, it was political. Politics presented an opportunity for many Christians who see politics differently to still love one another, still worship together, and still major on Jesus and major on the gospel. Now, many churches split up over the whole deal. Now, it wasn't just politics. It was a pandemic. As well, mask and no mask. Okay, this year it's been vaccines or no vaccines, right? 
And there's differences on both sides of this thing. And there are godly people who love Jesus and love God and love, love the church on both sides of this thing. And it's presented us an opportunity to major on the majors, which the gospel and love, and to minor on the minors. Okay, and here at City Church, one of our values is unified diversity. Unified diversity. It's on our website. If you want to look at it and what we mean by that, it says this. It says, we embrace and honor diversity in our church. Heaven is and will be a place of diversity with people from every ethnic group. Okay, racism within the last year has been an issue. But but the kingdom of God uh, transcends ethnic barriers the gospel tears down ethnic barriers and a part of our vision is to be a diverse ethnically diverse group of people old and young people from all walks of life because that's what heaven looks like it's diverse every tribe and every tongue will be worshiping around the throne okay and there are core truths it goes on we've We've wrote this out. There are core truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ that unite us, which we refuse to compromise. We're not saying it's something like all roads lead to God. We're just going to be unified, right? No, Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father God except through me, he said, right? He's the only way to salvation. We're not going to compromise on truths like that. His sacrificial death as the atoning sacrifice for our sins is the only means that we're forgiven and have eternal salvation and and are spared from eternal condemnation so we're not going to compromise on those truths there are also secondary issues and preferences in which we give one another freedom to believe differently without judging or breaking fellowship judging and breaking fellowship has happened a lot with this golden opportunity that we've been presented in 2020 and 2021 right now we've been presented with an opportunity to love one another through our differences and our different perspectives that's why romans 14 is really important where paul talks about a diverse church jew and gentile people who felt comfortable eating meat sacrificed to idols and people who didn't and Paul says, hey, don't judge your brother who, who or sister who's eating that meat sacrificed to idols and vice versa, who's not eating, don't judge. But whatever you're, you do, make sure you're doing it in faith. Don't destroy, don't destroy your brother or sister who God made for, for the sake of food over these secondary issues, you know? And, and, and he tells them in, in Romans 14, if you eat, do it in faith as unto God. But if you doubt in doing it, then you're sinning. Don't go against your conscience in it might be okay for your brother. It might not be okay for you. Don't judge your brother in it or sister on these secondary issues. There's, there's space for debate and discussion and, 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 and to, to be able to talk about these things. Like right now, vaccines is a big deal. And a lot of people see that getting vaccination is, is a loving thing to do because you're stopping the spread. And, and others don't feel that way. And there's research and there's, there's arguments on both sides. Me, my wife and I were having great discussion with some dear brothers and sisters who see this, per, this particular issue a little bit different than we do. And you know what? We love each other and we're able to have discussions. There are, there are many Christians who don't have those relationships where they could talk about these heated differences 
and still love each other. And that's what we want to be. We want to provide spaces where we can talk through some of these difficult situations and these, these hot topics. We don't want to just sweep them under the rug and ignore them because we don't want to rock the boat. We can talk about difficult things if we can do it in a loving way and, and major on the majors and minor on the minors. So Francis Schaeffer says this. He says, it is in the midst of difference that we have our golden opportunity. When everything is going well, we are all standing around a nice little circle. There's not much to be seen by the world. But when we come to the place where there is a real difference and we exhibit uncompromised principles, but at the same time, observable love, then there is something that the world can see. Something they can judge that these really are Christians and Jesus has indeed been sent by the Father. Jesus in John 17 prayed. He prayed for the unity of the church. That the church would be united and would be one. This is the heart of God. And so beware, Christian, beware that you don't destroy your brother or sister, cause division in the body of Christ amongst the people of God and the family of God over secondary issues. This is a matter of love. Okay? We can walk together and live together as brothers and sisters in the family of God and see different on politics, on medicine. Okay? We can see different on a number of different things. But of course, the gospel is what unites us. The person of Jesus is what unites us. Our core faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is what unites us. Amen? Mother Teresa said that it's not what you do, but how much love you put into it that matters. It's not what you do, but how much love that you put into it that matters. Now, this was a woman who gave her life to care for the poor and the sick in India. I don't know if you've ever been to India or seen pictures, but I've, I've been twice. Places that I went to and saw, some of the places I went to was, was the most poverty that I've ever seen in the world. There, was a lot, there were some beautiful aspects of the country, but, but I remember just being having a culture shock when I was there. Like I just felt like there were so many people in one place and so many homeless people, so many beggars, so much need. Like, what can we do? How can we even make a difference? How can we help? And here's a woman who poured out her life, who poured out her life to serve the poor and the sick and the afflicted, who gave her, her, her life as, as, as a loving sacrifice. And so I think she's a great example. Jesus is the greatest example of love love should have action behind it not just talk not just prayer i mean prayer is a great way to express love for folks jesus ever lives to make intercession for us he's interceding for us he has prayed for us in john 17 did you know that jesus prayed for you even before you were born those who would believe so prayer is one way but but action practical action when you see a need, First John tells us, chapter 3, if you see your brother or sister in need and you, and you don't do anything, you don't take action, maybe you say, or, or James, you say, God bless you, be warm and filled. Is that love? Just by saying, be warm and filled. Just send your thoughts, right? 
warm wishes. So James and John both say that real faith and real love have action behind it. Real Christianity has action behind it. Jesus, as we have seen in the Gospel of Mark, lived a life of action, loving sacrifice, moving towards those who are marginalized, those who are afflicted, those who are vulnerable, those who are hurting, those who most needed what he had to offer or most realized that they needed what he had to offer. And so let me close in some application here. First, give your attention, affection, and highest allegiance to God. Your attention, your affection. Don't be ashamed of, of giving him those things either. Don't be ashamed of, of, of God and, and worshiping him for who he is or talking about him or looking silly be, by, because of the way you talk about God or the way you sing about God. Unashamedly give him your love and your affection, your attention and your highest allegiance. And giving Jesus your highest allegiance, giving God your highest allegiance may make you look weird to many folks in the outside. There's going to be times when you and I, Christian, will look very weird for giving God our highest allegiance. There will be time when authorities may try to tell us to do something that goes against what God has clearly said. And at that point, our highest allegiance needs to be on display that it's to God. We're not going to bow. We're not going to worship. We're not going to stop talking about Jesus, loving Jesus and give your give others your focused attention. Okay, here here's a here's a very practical way we can love others in a distracted age, in a distracted world, and I confess that I am guilty. And I and I confess my own conviction in thinking about this with my own family and my my kids particularly. Focused attention is a way that we can give genuine love to others. Warren in his book Purpose Driven Life has a chapter on love. And he says that the most desired gift of love, the most desired gift of love, it's not diamonds or roses or chocolate. It's focused attention. Love concentrates so intently on another that you forget yourself at that moment. Attention says, I value you enough to give you my most precious asset, my time. Right? This is good. This is practical. A practical expression of love is, is giving our time and giving focused attention of our time. Wives, isn't this what you want from your husbands? Kids, isn't this what you want from mom and dad? Focused attention. Lastly, be patient with others and make sacrifices to help them. Be patient with others' differences, with others' flaws, others' failures, others' faults. Instead of keeping record of wrongs and having your indictment written up in your mind or on your phone or on paper, your indictment of another person's wrongs, forgive them. Bring those to the cross and forgive as God has forgiven you. Doesn't mean you don't address your brother or sister when, when they're sinning against you. Jesus said, do that. Confront. Speak the truth in love. But don't hold a grudge. Life is too short to hold a grudge. It's too short. It's not worth it. It steals your joy. It steals your peace. It spoils your relationships. We're made for relationship with God and with others. 
And when we're on our deathbed, when we're experiencing the last moments of our life here, we're not going to say, hey, bring me my college degree. Bring me my trophies. All right. Remind me of my accomplishments. We want people, not achievements and trophies and things or, or money in those last moments. We want people near us that we love. People that we care about most before we have our last moments in this life. Because relationships matter. What matters most is loving God and loving people. The cross has two beams on it. One that goes this way vertically and one that goes this way horizontally. And that's what we are about as Christians. Loving God and loving people. We are about the cross. We are about relationships. We value relationships more than getting tasks done. More than achieving great things and being successful in the eyes of the world and making a a six-figure salary. We value relationships because people last forever. Amen? Let us close together in prayer. And I want to invite you all to pray this with me. It's a prayer for God to fill us with his love. Father, let my love for you and others not grow cold, but rather be fervent, genuine, and steadfast. Show me the depth of your love for me and make me a conduit of your love to others. Let love bring me together in harmonious relationships with other Christians and let our love for one another be a witness to the world of the authenticity of the gospel we have believed and proclaimed in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance on you. And may he give you his peace.